Tonight's reading can be found on page 972, Matthew chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 27. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this man, one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and said to those following him, I truly I tell you I truly I tell you I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith I say to you sorry my glasses have cl- clouded up <laughs> I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, And birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. 
But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Thank you very much indeed for reading, John. Um, perhaps it might just be helpful to explain how we've come to land in Matthew chapter 8 and what uh, Sunday evenings are going to look like over the next uh, few weeks. Um, we finished our series on male and female two weeks ago and in a couple of weeks' time we will start a, a four-week series in Haggai and uh, no need to guess what follows after that, the run-up to Christmas, with our, and we will start with our evangelistic uh, outreach musical event, which we normally do at that time. But why chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, um, uh, sorry, why chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew over these two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday? Well, they loosely follow on from our teaching at the weekend away uh, last week, um, last weekend, Denham Grove. Um, we uh, dipped our toe, or perhaps it was only half a toe, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great, uh, if you weren't able to be with us, many people have said that the explanation we had of those uh, Beatitudes was actually very illuminating. We may have, I've had studied that many occasions, but the teaching we got last weekend was superb. Um, Matthew, and the Sermon on the Mount is a bit like a manifesto. Uh, Jesus explaining uh, what it likes and what, he's ex- what he expects of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Um, and then in chapters 8 and 9, uh, we have um, the king uh, at work. We see tremendous works of King Jesus. Uh, over these two chapters, we have nine uh, miracles uh, that Jesus performed. And so we see, and um, Jesus didn't simply teach what it meant to belong uh, to the kingdom, but he lived at, that out, obviously, in his own perfect, sinless life. And uh, we see over these, these two chapters uh, his tremendous power, his unlimited power. In chapter 8, uh, we've got five of these miracles, um, and I haven't got enough time to cover all five. So I've, I've chosen three, and three of these episodes here all feature the issue of faith um, on the part of those who benefited from Jesus' power. Um, But let me pray as we begin to look at this uh, passage. Father God, please help me as I share what I believe you've given me to share. Please help me to communicate clearly 
And please help everyone here to be attentive and to receive and to apply what you intend them to hear and to act upon. Father, we ask this in the name of our Saviour and our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, um, we're going to begin at verse, verse 1. So Jesus, we, we read, comes down from the, the mountainside, large crowds follow him. And uh, I think if we can have the first slide, go to look at, or it's probably the first slide into the uh, confident faith. A, a man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. When you read these first two verses, you might get the impression that this man with leprosy just emerged from the crowds, but that is most, most unlikely. Um, Anyone with leprosy wouldn't dare mingle um, with a crowd. They were outcasts. And uh, when Jesus has healed him, he said, don't tell anyone. Well, he would hardly have said that, if he'd actually performed this in front of an enormous crowd. So I think the, the presumption, the strong indication is that uh, this was later on, the crowds had dispersed, and this um, healing uh, took place in secret, perhaps just with, the club, with his disciples. Um, I must rebuke myself for using the word heal. The word heal was never used... <coughs> in relation to uh, leprosy. Uh, what was the word? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, uh, I am willing, be clean. And obviously that was the, po- the point was that anyone with leprosy uh, was ceremonially unclean by virtue of their condition. They really did need to be made clean, uh, to be free from the stigma attached to this awful disease, Uh, to be integrated in society uh, and, of course, as well as being free from the pain and the dreadful physical symptoms of the disease. Um, The other two miracles we will be looking at were both performed by Jesus speaking a word. And there was a strong case for the same approach for this ceremonially unclean guy, potentially infectious man, But Jesus recognised what it would mean for the man to feel the touch of another human, let alone King Jesus. And Jesus had, as he always had, a deep love and compassion which caused him to heal the man uh, through a touch. It's interesting that this is, um, despite the fact that that would cause him, cause Jesus to be defiled himself, according to the ceremonial law. Um, And of course, Jesus often touched people requiring healing. But in this case, there's greater emphasis upon uh, the touch, because it says in verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. So it it gives that emphasis uh, of of the touch that Jesus had upon this man. What of the man? What we, um, he kneels before Jesus. He addresses him as Lord, which is best interpreted as Sir. 
And unlike many others whom Jesus healed, he did not plead with Jesus, but simply made a statement. It's not really actually a request, it's just a statement. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's no doubt in on this guy's part, there's no doubt in Jesus' power to rid him of the horrible disease. He had absolute confidence that Jesus was able to meet that deepest need. The one if was, are you willing? And of course, Jesus was. I think this is a challenge for us when we bring our petitions to God. Do we have that same absolute confidence in God's power to meet every need? Yes, we we need to be open to God's will and purpose, but let us never waver in our faith, in God's ability to do anything that he desires. And let us never waver in our belief in his great mercy and in his compassion. During the early stages of COVID and as it progressed, I prayed that the Lord would halt its spread and eradicate the virus. I was one of several billion across the globe who would have been praying that prayer. I now wonder whether I truly had the faith to expect God had the power to answer that prayer. I know that God was all-powerful. I'd never doubted that for one moment. And yet when we are facing a desperate situation, our faith can fail us, we can waver. I think there can be a disconnect between what we absolutely know to be true on the one hand and the faith we're able to muster on the other. It reminds me of the father who wanted Jesus to heal his son who was possessed with a spirit. And Jesus said to the father, everything is possible for one who believes. And uh, you will know what the father responded. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So having healed a man who was excluded from the community because of his uh, uh, physical condition, because of his disease, Jesus' next encounter is with a Roman, someone outside the covenant of Israel. And he then follows that up with the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which we won't look at. But in Jewish society, women did not have the same status as men. So interestingly, there's a common denominator in these three miracles which will have caused the raising of the eyebrows of the Jewish religious leaders. For those different different reasons, they would all have been looked down upon by the Jewish religious leaders, but not by Jesus, who seemed to take delight in causing eyebrows to be raised and muttering to take place behind his back. So we're looking, um, moving on to this centurion. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus gets back to Capernaum, where he lives. The centurion was a junior officer in the auxiliary forces. His servant was ill. Um, perhaps it was somebody particularly close to him, may have been his personal attendant. 
And as with the man with leprosy, there's not a direct request for healing. Again, it is a statement. Lord, he says in verse 6, my servant lies at home, paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? What was Jesus conveying with that question? Was he saying, do you, being a Gentile, really expect me to come into your house to heal your servant? I'm sure that was not the case. I'm sure Jesus was testing the genuineness of the centurion's faith. And uh, as far as Jesus was concerned, race was no barrier to faith. He just wanted to be sure that the centurion was of the same mind. But whether it's right for Jesus to enter the centurion's house does not become an issue. As far as the centurion is concerned, it's irrelevant. He does not consider that Jesus should visit because he knows that he's personally unworthy to have Jesus in his home. And so the issue that he is a Gentile is not material. But in any event, he doesn't see any need for Jesus to visit the home. As far as the centurion is concerned, Jesus can heal the servant from just where he's standing by simply speaking and exercising his authority over the sickness. He explains that uh, he gives orders to his soldiers and they're always carried out. And he knows that Jesus has a far, far greater authority over everyone and everything, including sickness. Jesus only needs to say the word and the servant would be healed. That really was an incredible expression of faith and we should not be surprised by Jesus' reaction. In verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And the word translated as as amazed is the same word that that Jesus used um, in another situation when he was amazed by the lack of faith of the people in his own town. So we see in verse 13 that the centurion gets his wish granted. Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Going to the third uh, miracle I would just want to look at really is um, the last one that uh, John read, verse 23. And here we see Jesus talking about the little faith um, of his own disciples. Uh, It's quite a contrast here between the centurion and Jesus' own disciples. Having commended the Gentile for his great faith, we now find Jesus rebuking his disciples for having little faith. It's something of an irony that the disciples, some of whom were fishermen, 
and therefore accustomed to rough weather at sea, it's an irony that they were fearful and yet Jesus was fast asleep. It's a very familiar story. The disciples got to the point where they felt there was no alternative but to wake Jesus. Was it out of personal fear for their own personal safety or were they concerned that if they all drowned with Jesus, then his mission would come to an end? Possibly it was the latter. But whatever their reason, Jesus did not approve of their cry for help. And it's not because he was tired and they had disturbed his sleep. So why did Jesus give them a rap on the knuckles and accuse them of having little faith? Jesus recognised that they had faith. Seemingly, they did believe that Jesus could save them. I'd like to quote from a friend of mine, uh, J.C. Ryle, a great preacher of the 19th century. What a vivid an instructive picture we have here of the hearts of thousands of believers. How many have faith and love enough to forsake all for Christ's sake and to follow him wherever he leaves and yet are full of fears in the hour of trial? How many have grace enough to turn to Jesus in every trouble crying, Lord, save us, and yet do not have grace enough to lie still and believe in the darkest hour that all is well. I believe that is why Jesus spoke of his disciples as having little faith. It requires a great faith to wait for deliverance out of the storm. A faith that says, if Jesus is here, I have no need to fear the storm, however threatening it may seem to be. And Ryle goes on to say, let the prayer, Lord, increase our faith, always form part of our daily prayers. We never truly know the weakness of our faith until we are placed in the furnace of trial and anxiety. Blessed is that person who finds by experience that his faith can stand the fire and that he can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So those are the three great works of faith of, of Jesus the King which I want to cover. Except if you were following closely, you would have noticed that I skipped over a couple of verses in the healing of the centurion's servant. And I'd like to go back to those verses, 11 and 12. Because I think that's a, another picture of faith, of saving faith. Having heard the centurion's faith, Jesus identifies uh, an opportunity for the gospel. If only we were to follow his example and look for those opportunities that come our way and grasp them. Jesus was dispelling the myth that the kingdom of heaven is a closed shop, that membership was the exclusive right of all who were part of God's chosen nation by birth. Jesus said, 
that there would be many Gentiles in the kingdom. In speaking of the, the feast, Jesus was referring to the messianic banquet, which was considered to be a blessing exclusively for Israelites. What Jesus was saying would have shocked the people who heard it, that there would be many Gentiles uh, in that kingdom. But he went further by emphasising the converse to that statement. If those Gentiles would gain entry to the kingdom by virtue of their faith, then the subjects of the kingdom, those who thought they had a right to entry on account of their birth, would be excluded because they did not have the right entry qualification, faith in Jesus. Saving faith in Jesus is all that really mattered then, and it's all that really matters today. And of course, saving faith goes beyond believing. It requires living under Jesus' authority. And uh, how desperately this message is needed today. Tim said, one out of a hundred in his office on his floor. And that would be the experience of many of us in our streets. Countless numbers of very sincere people are unaware that what they believe is a passport to, to heaven is actually invalid. It hasn't just expired, it never was valid. It was fraudulent from the very beginning. They believe that they belong to the kingdom of God by virtue of their birth or their church going or the charitable works or something else or a combination of all uh, a number of things. But true faith in Jesus Christ is missing and that means they are amongst the many who are on the broad road to destruction. To a place where we're told in verse 12 there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May I urge each one of us to be people who will follow Jesus' example, indeed his command, to proclaim the good news, the incredible news of saving faith to, to those who are on that road to destruction. Even here this evening, there may be one or two or more who have yet to trust Christ, and as things stand, they will not spend eternity with him. If you're in that situation, please think seriously about your need to ask Christ to be your saviour so that you are safe when he returns as the judge of us all. I'd like to finish by quoting from J.C. Ryle again. Um, Just a wonderful uh, commentator. Great wisdom in his writings. And I love his language of 170 years ago. To believe Christ's power and willingness to help and to make a practical use of our belief is a rare and precious gift. Let us ever be thankful if we have it. To be willing to come to Jesus as helpless, lost sinners and commit our souls into his hands is a mighty privilege. Let us ever bless God if this willingness is ours for it is his gift. Such faith 
is better than all other gifts and knowledge in the world. Many a poor converted heathen who knows nothing other than the fact that he is sick of sin and trusts in Jesus shall sit down in heaven, while many learned English scholars are rejected forevermore. Faith in Christ appears a small and simple thing to the children of this world. They see in it nothing great or grand, but faith in Christ is most precious in God's sight, and like most precious things is rare. By faith, True Christians live, by faith they stand, by faith they overcome the world, and without it, no one can be saved. Let me close in prayer. Almighty and all-powerful God, Your word tells us it is by grace we are saved through faith, not from ourselves, it is your gift to us. Thank you for this greatest and the most precious of all gifts, faith by which we are saved and by which we will be safe in your kingdom forever. We identify with the disciples of Jesus of whom he said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Father, we confess the weakness of our faith at times. We we ask that you will increase our faith so that in the trials we will encounter, we will have such an assurance of your presence that we will not be afraid, that we will know that all is well. And finally, Father God, please give us the courage to speak of your gift of faith to those who have yet to receive it and may not even recognise their need of it. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.